Saturn Dave here from Sega Saturn Shiro, and today we're pulling from the Shiro archive an interview with Dr. Eric Amarez of the Duck Corporation, creators of the True Motion video codec used on the 3DO, the Saturn, Dreamcast, PC, and subsequent platforms. This interview was pulled from December 18th, 2019, Season 4, Episode 3, DuckTales, with Dr. Eric Amarez. The Shiro's that conducted this interview were Kay Kona, Patrick Trainer, and Peter Malik. This interview has been uploaded for archival purposes and may be used with permission. We hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today and having this conversation. My pleasure. Uh, we're going to start off uh, with asking you a question. Not a lot of uh, our audience is actually going to be aware of who you are or what your role uh, related to the Saturn was. So. I'd like to you know, have you introduce yourself and just give our listeners a little bit of background uh, about you and your history with the Saturn. I was a uh, software engineer for Duck Tech, uh, the Duck Corporation at the time, back in the 90s. And I joined that company specifically because I had a lot of experience in sort of real-time and kind of performance-oriented programming and assembly language and you know working with that sort of uh, those sorts of applications. And what we did, uh, our job as as uh, Duck was really it's tough because uh, we were our job was to be in, in vis- as invisible yeah as invisible as possible. Uh, we did um, the uh, basically FMV or, or video compression for a lot of uh, the games. We made uh, uh, tools available that could be that you know developers could choose to use to include everything from you know like a full motion video cut sequence or integrating uh, graphics that they needed to compress one way or another in the game. Uh, and we did the same for both video and for audio. Uh, I joined. Shortly after there, basically the company had uh, started working with Sega and they were kind of working out the the details of what uh, the relationship would be. And I was lucky enough to to kind of become the primary the primary person working on the Saturn and, and eventually the Dreamcast as well. So that's my real short story of how it all got kicked off. I became really, really great friends with a lot of the folks at, at SOJ, uh, Sega of Japan, Sega of America. Um, for a while there, I was probably going visiting Tokyo ballpark, you know, once a month sort of thing, uh, leading up to, you know, launches and uh, particular titles and things. Went to a lot of different uh, Sega conferences, talking to people about you know, how to use the tools and how to integrate it in there. But yeah, it's 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 a tough job in that you, you had to be a sort of as invisible as possible. That's the nice thing, or the supposed to be the nice thing about video compression. When it works well, you don't notice it. I think really that's the best thing you can say just about programming in general. You know, you just got to be invisible as possible to make sure the consumer has the best end product at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Yeah. The last thing you want them doing is noticing you. Then they have something to complain about. Eric, I don't know if there is such a thing, but did you have, you know, a standard day at uh, Duck Corporation? Like, what did that look like? Or was it just sort of all over the map, depending on what was going on? Um, well, it was definitely all over the map. Uh, interesting thing about working at Duck at the time, we were a very, very small company. Um, handful of people, uh, I want to say six, maybe eight of us. Uh, and the one thing that happened when I joined, I, I was the one who didn't want to move to Manhattan. The main office of, of uh, Duck was actually in the Tribeca Film Center uh, building. The landlord was uh, Robert De Niro, 
it's a fun story. And I live, and I still live upstate, uh, about two hours away from from the main office there. So uh, I didn't want to go down there, or I, I, I'm happy to go down there. I, I actually grew up in in, uh, in Queens, but uh, I, you know, lived up here in in uh, the Albany, New York area. So I would shuttle back and forth, uh, taking the train or driving. So I guess it's, it was more week by week than day by day. And, you know, I'd go down there for a couple of days each week, drive down middle of the night or middle of the morning and you know, sleep on the couch and, and do all that kind of stuff, uh, especially, you know, around deadlines and, and so on. Um, but we were definitely a small, small company and, and trying to innovate rather quickly. And, and then eventually, as we worked more and more with uh, uh, Sega of Japan, especially, uh, you know, everything became sort of round the clock <laughs> kind of thing because we would be, you know, I'd be getting conference calls and on the phone all the time, <laughs> literally all the time. So it was incredibly hectic, uh, but incredibly fun and, and just, you know, great working with all kinds of people around the world on different things. It's a good time to be in video games. Who were the uh, first game-oriented companies that approached you to use True Motion? Well, outside, we actually, before working with Sega, uh, we got our start uh, largely in, we'd done some stuff for Intel, kind of showing off early MMX and early processors, and there are a couple of different uh, companies there, but we probably made the biggest early splash for ourselves uh, offering true motion for the 3do game system and that kind of uh, proved we had some credibility and uh, we actually uh, in one game which we might talk a little bit about later because it did show up on the Saturn got you know best looking video uh, on that on that platform in its early days and that kind of you know got us a good start on stuff so from there you know uh, once we were with Sega then of course you know developing tools with them that opened the doors to lots and lots of uh, Sega developers and uh, a lot of people were doing, you know, cross-platform things as well. So we started working a lot across a lot of platforms, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of different things. Um, uh, so did you sort of work with 3DO and a lot of the PC stuff at the same time, or was it you're mainly on the PC, then moved over to 3DO, or worked on simultaneously? Well, 3DO was pretty. It was actually pretty early on. I personally didn't work on the 3DO, so that. Uh, uh, was sort of limited. We kind of moved on from 3DO pretty quickly. We continued to support the PC for quite a while, but my main platform personally was was actually the Saturn, and eventually then the Dreamcast, and then all the tools on the on the PC that sort of uh, supported that. And then a lot of the we 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 learned a lot of things about doing compression on there that then eventually kind of backfilled into into other platforms. Uh, and we tried to also maintain kind of standard interfaces and standard you know libraries and things. So if if someone developed a game on the Saturn, they could easily port at least our pieces of it, you know, to other platforms as well. Um, like you saw, I don't know if you, if, if uh, you're familiar with Enemy Zero, that was a good example of a, a game that uh, was done on the Saturn and then eventually got uh, ported over to the PC. So that was uh, a good example of that, I think. Was it hard to sort of port the the the, um, the codec and engine over to different consoles or between Saturn and PC, or was it seamless in a way? Um, from an interface point of view, is pretty straightforward. From a performance and coding point of view, we had a lot of work to do. Obviously, the, the platforms back then were not nearly as as fast uh, and you know processor capable as things are today. Gigahertz back then, as opposed to you know gigahertz. So we did. We spent a lot of time optimizing code. You know, I, I spent the better portion of my time continually optimizing for the SH two. Uh, you know, taking advantage of, you know, like parallel processing on the Saturn and so on. So there was, there was lots of stuff that we had to do 
that hopefully made it you know seamless for developers you know they would just say oh decompress a frame of video and not have to worry about you know uh all the performance stuff under underneath but uh, that's the part we had worried about so speaking on that what sort of were the typical ratios of compressions that you guys achieved during the during your during the day of the in the saturn using true motion versus other codecs in its day so i mean you, you mess with a lot of different material and things to get that down to that level um, hmm, compression ratios. That's a good, that's a good question. At the end of the day, the way it kind of, what it really came down to is we know, we knew we had a specific amount of data that we could stream off the CD. You know, there's a, a specific speed we could do it because it was a, you know, a, basically a 2X CD at that time. So in, you know, 300 kilobytes per second, how good could we make it look? So it it uh, it just became you know finding the right settings and and uh, getting it to be at that bit rate. By today's standards, it was not nearly as compressed. You know, looking at you know even you know the stuff. Uh, I guess a good side note uh, that onto technologies the compression. If you're watching you know uh, YouTube these days or maybe even Hulu or uh, you know a lot of things, they're they're all you know WebM is is a descendant of the compression technology in many ways that uh, you know we had then and. So on, and they're obviously way, way, way more capable now. But then, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was kilobytes per second, not kilobits per second. Uh, it was more, you know, we were focused about making sure that the quality was there, you know, just uh, and offering, you know, the, the best tools and stuff for for developers. So it was, you know, two x data rates was just what we were going by. You know, best quality at two x CD data rates. I gotcha. And what sort of like file formats were they working with in that time? Was it using basically just doing direct transfers to like film prints or something of that nature or some art cells and doing it all digitally? Or was it all done digitally, specifically uh, animation wise? By the time we got it, usually it had already been digitized and or, or, or had been done you know, on, on, you know, we just received files. Uh, sometimes we would receive like a beta SP tape or, you know, some kind of high quality, you know, usually just for the, for the live uh, stuff that had been shot live. Typically we were getting hard disk FedExed or something from, from somewhere based on the quality and the cleanness of things. I'm going to say, you know, most of what I would see would, would have already been done digitally on, you know, on a workstation and rendered from there or, you know, drawn on there. There were, there were definitely some things in a lot of test things. I remember some, some Sonic test files, which were certainly hand-drawn animation and they were, you know, hand-shaded and, you know, kind of this beautiful stuff. I I think I put some of the stuff up there. It's, you might be able to find it on YouTube. So it was a variety, a variety of things, but uh, they were always, you know, most companies were always pushing to try to get us, uh, the best quality formats available that, that they could, whatever depended on the project. But, uh, you know, it's always, even, even though we're compressing it down to incredibly low resolutions and whatnot, it's always about, you know, garbage in, garbage out sort of thing. So you want to get the best quality stuff in the first place. Yeah. You'd, you'd rather downscale than upscale then, right? Yeah. 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 And it's fun because I, I, I have every so often I'll be looking through like a, you know, cause I'm a pack rat about these things and I have, unearthed a few really really pristine original renders and stuff and and put them up somewhere and people are like wow that's you know the game never looked that good i'm like you're absolutely right because this is like the artist version you know as as they delivered it to the programmers and so that's that's really fun every so often uh, encountering a little bit of history like that makes me wonder if they have it laying around somewhere where if they nowadays if they do a remake they can just take that high quality file and just place that in there and use you know newer compression algorithms to get that as high quality as possible Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. There, there definitely have been cases where you know assets have been lost, and they, they, you know, you can't go back and you can't replicate things. 
it's you know it's it's kind of a tragedy of the digital era it's it's it, it, it becomes really easy to generate stuff but it also becomes very easy to lose stuff uh, <laughs> unfortunate actually just recently been working a lot I, i'm working at an art center right now i've been there for the better part of oh wow a dozen years now and one of the projects i'm working on right now is digital archiving and we have this massive library of of all sorts of performances and, and work that we've done and trying to properly archive it so that you know 50 years from now someone will you know still be able to to see all of it in generally good looking formats so it's it always remains the case of uh oh, digital archiving that's to preserve like, it uh, something that's right up your alley Kay. so um eric tell us when did you move on uh from on to slash the doc corporation Ooh, that was in 2007 actually i left uh on to at the time and i decided uh basically I'd sort of been in my CTO role, my management role for quite a while. And I left to kind of rejoin basically my alma mater. My, my college was uh, opening this art center, uh, the Experimental Media and Performing Arts Center. And uh, I was lucky enough to kind of join the project kind of early on as the uh, senior research engineer and get back into the trenches. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely more, I like being kind of where the rubber hits the road sort of thing and I guess I was just sort of tired of management sort of stuff as opposed to uh my having my hands as much in the code as possible and you know so it made, it made sense um to kind of do that at the time that's kind of what happened. Do you have any plans on taking older development platforms that you've worked on in the past and uh showing them to your students like taking a, the Saturn development system that you have and showing them what it was like to program this. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you know there's there's lots of uh things to be gained by learning from the past. You know, sometimes it's easy to overlook some kind of technology or to to you know downplay the importance of history. Unfortunately, not my original, you know, the big the big systems that were the size of, you know, the original prototypes um for the Saturn were were behemoths, you know, they were they were the size of a, like a microwave oven, a oh, big microwave Sophia's? oven. Yes, yes. Um unfortunately, I, I you're going to cry when I say this, but I think they just they they got rid of them after I left and I think they just literally pushed them off the loading dock into a dumpster kind of oh. thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, right? You know, it's like, uh, wish I, I should have taken them. I really, really should have taken them. But that was, you know, I was like, what happened? To oh, we got rid of all this. Oh, no. But thankfully, I held on to, you know, the my core development system. And it, it does boot up. And it's it's really great to see. And I still have my, you know, CD emulators and, and whatnot uh, that, that work on there. Yeah, students students love to see that sort of thing as well, and it's it's uh, you know curiosity and, and retro gaming and and nostalgia gaming is is uh, you know very much alive and well, and you know the stuff that happened then is impacting what's being developed now, and you know the styles, the formats, the, the looks, the the gameplay. You know, it's it's not just about all the newest technology. It's you know there were there've been a lot of great games made over time, so it's lots of good stuff to to refer to and look at. But yeah, I'm excited to actually put that on the shelf. I have to bring in a, you have to, of course, have to bring in a CRT, uh, which is going to be fun. I think I have to keep my big 27-inch Sony at home so I can still play House of the Dead with the uh, with my light gun. But uh, I have to bring at least like a 13-inch CRT so they can experience it, you know, 
Like yeah, I think I saw on your YouTube channel with your uh, your PVM in the background there on the uh, yeah. that not video, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That gorgeous, gorgeous PVM. Yeah, no, that's that's a big thing. All the guys in the community nowadays clamor for is the uh, the Sony PVM monitors. They're hunting them down. I see. Uh, I saw some posts locally of people like, "Oh, hey, anybody have any PVM monitors lying around?" My other have this big this Panasonic, which might even be nicer, and that's actually out in my shop at the moment. I get to make sure that's still doing okay. It's it's a worry because now, of course, you know, they're, they're as, as old as they are, you got to worry about you know the capacitors going bad and all that kind of stuff. So they they definitely need some some care and uh, a lot of people will go and and you know put in recap them and do all sorts of things to keep them running true motion was pretty much the epitome of of what duck was providing to sega and you know the gaming industry at large you know during your time period there um what impact has true motion had outside of the gaming industry you mentioned a little bit about this before but if you can go into depth about it Sure. Well, uh, True Motion in in many ways, I guess the the name has has sort of fizzled out a little bit. I mean, but uh, it is certainly the ancestor. Shortly after I left uh, in 2010, I think now I left in 2007. Um, so Onto was was purchased by Google. Uh, so it became the True Motion stuff, which had then become after TM2 and True Motion 2X. There became uh, VP3, which is sort of a renaming of True Motion, uh, and also it incorporated a lot of new technologies. We had we had acquired another company, uh, and kind of shifted to a, a, some more some frequency domain based compression stuff, and uh, but still you know kept a lot of our core stuff in there well, and continued to evolve and so on. And that's become WebM and and the new advanced. Uh, it's not the H.264 advanced media codec, but the oh, what's the latest name? It's it's been changing a couple of times now, but the open codec uh, that Google and a lot of different companies are working on is uh, is a descendant of, of uh, True Motion. And I know at Google, a lot of the folks who were at Onto and, and actually had done various versions of uh, even some of the True Motion stuff, some of the compression tools back in the day, are are still working diligently on the latest uh, technologies out there. So a lot of people are actually using descendants of uh, of that of those codecs today more so than than back then <laughs> so there's billions of them out there now whereas opposed to millions so i know that's a all of the true motion stuff back in the day were really used on crts um i was curious when you guys were developing the uh the codec was there any thought of going to lcd and i was just curious if you know with the lc if you guys thought oh maybe we should future proof this for lcd or you had any lcd testing rigs and that you worked on we definitely there were things we did and we took advantage of on on CRTs to kind of disguise certain types of um, artifacts and things in uh, in in pleasing ways and the ways you would notice you know in terms of you know people were used to you know scan lines and so on so a lot of the time when we were doing and and blurriness between scan lines so we had some some special modes if you needed you know extra extra compression. Uh, there's this famous mode that we referred to in-house as Fat Freddy mode, which there was a game called Fox Hunt. I think it only came out, it might have been just a PC game early on, I forget now. And uh, it was all FMV and, and they needed just so much compression going on. So we would do this, we offered this mode where it was like a three halves, two thirds sort of like squished horizontally because of, you know, you could kind of count on a certain amount of smearing across the, uh, the you know, the uh, horizontal scan lines as opposed to, you know, trying to keep things crisp uh, across you know, cross scan lines. Um, so we played games with that. And there was a lot of things that we also did early on in 
inside of our, our algorithms specific in terms of how we chose basically the delta sets. You know, we, we, it was all, I guess now you can find out all this stuff since it's all been published and patents have, have, you know, we did a lot of stuff with basically sort of a two-dimensional delta coding um, at the time. And by choosing very carefully how you, you know, how you did that delta coding, you could in introduce artifacts or, or keep your artifacts looking very natural like we had we were very famous for having sort of a very film grain um kind of texture so our artifacts had a generally pleasing texture especially if you looked at like you know sketches or or anime hand-drawn anime and so on we could kind of tune our uh our, our settings to kind of hide the artifacts in ways that were kind of that fit the artistic intent of the of the video itself like we had you know a set that would work better for live video and a set that would work better for hand-drawn animation or flat animation or things like that um it, ooh, let's see we didn't really worry too much about lcds at the time that that really came you know the the, the commonality of lcds on desktops definitely came more after we had done kind of the shift to more kind of a frequency domain DCT uh, based transformations that, that uh, other codecs also used. Um, so that, uh, that was a different era, a different style of compression by the time that LCDs were, were far more common. When did you uh, first hear about the uh, the Sega Saturn? Were you aware of it uh, when they first announced that from the Genesis, or was it something that you heard of when Sega contacted you? I joined Duck after the initial. So I think in the like the first days when I first joined the company, I think we already had the big Sophia box, and you know, it kind of had been unpacked in the Manhattan office, and everyone's like kind of staring at it, being like, "Well, geez, now what do we do?" And I was the the crazy one was like, yeah, give it to me. I'll figure it out. Um, so, so I had, uh, I, I dove right into that after it was, you know, sort of a, a foregone conclusion. We were doing it. Um, so uh, I hadn't been a super active gamer at that point. I'd done more sort of audio stuff and music stuff. And then I was doing like process automation and I was more a kind of, you know, casual gamer at that point, at that instant. So if you ask me, you know, 32X versus, you know, Master System versus, you know, that kind of thing, at, the, at that point, it, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't as plugged into it. I was an Atari ST programmer, actually. Uh, Atari ST was my big platform. So I did a lot of gaming on that. Um, and that's how I got to know Dan Miller, who was this, the CTO of Duck at that point, you know, kind of, I guess he was president and CTO and Stan Martyr was our CEO. So they were the kind of co chieftain of, of the company so yeah I, I i early on it was you know we were going to do it and i was like all right uh, this is this is mine i want to do this you just knew of it as the, the sophia at first right it wasn't like well, i knew it was the Saturn. it i mean it had it is it you know we we had heard code names about you know the other platforms the neptune and you know different things you know it had that wonderful cd the the you know the cd sitting on top of it so we knew it you know it was a sega box and it had you know logos and stuff on it you know, just printed on these wonderful big gray or, or beige metal things. Um, you know, Sophia, we knew it was the Saturn. You mentioned, you know, obviously being heavily involved with uh, Sega in that time. And, you know, you'd mentioned that you'd done a lot of visits over to uh, uh, Sega of Japan. 
And so we're just curious, what was that experience like? And I'm asking because us fans, you know, the, the guys that don't have any inside track, it always seemed that there was discord between the American and Japanese offices. And did you get any sense of that at all? Like, what was your firsthand impression uh, during those visits? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Oh, that's a good one. They they definitely were two different, I don't want to say two different companies, but you know, two different offices. They there was a tremendous amount of respect back and forth between each one, but they, you know, had different things that they focused on. And, you know, it wasn't I wouldn't say, you know, it was Discord or you know, it's like, like friendly competition, you know, maybe sort of things. You know, they had different markets and they knew there were, you know, different types of games appeal to the Japanese market than the US market and so on. But, you know, it was it was very interesting. I mean, I, I dove into Japanese culture at the time and stuff. And, and it was really interesting because literally the boxes came to us with just, you know, lots of manuals that were all in Japanese. There wasn't a lot. You know, clearly this was developed. You know, the hardware was developed in, in Tokyo. And that was a challenge. And uh, I remember talking to some of the folks at, at Sega of America saying, oh, yeah, you know, I got the I got the, the, the disc streaming at, you know, I'm getting the real 32X out of it. And they're like, what? How are you doing that? How's that? Po-? Yeah, we didn't think that was possible. And I'm like, well, I went this, you know, kind of dove in and just hacked and hacked and hacked at it. Eventually, I I did learn some Japanese. Uh, I actually took two semesters of, of Japanese at the time. And there's some some great resources I had. And, and the I, I sort of got adopted by a bunch of the people in at uh, developer techni- technical support uh, and they helped and they, you know, it was, it was fantastic. They, you know, I still have some books and stuff that uh, they gave me to help in my, my Japanese and, and translations and stuff. It was really, uh, you know, it, it was a really, really close relationship. So I, I, you know, I love the people at Sega of America as well. Um, is it, you know, different, different types of relationships. How did you like physically communicate with these folks down there? But I mean, obviously, so, you know, you took some Japanese. Uh, did you ever get to a point where you were fluent or or at least able to carry on a conversation with folks down there? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, obviously, their their English was generally way better than my Japanese. You know, no, no, uh, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I was really fluent. I, I got to the point where I could I could you know, carry on a conversation with a stranger on a bus. So that was, that was pretty good. A funny story. I remember going and, you know, telling people at a meeting and, and they said, you know, that just everyone starts laughing after I tell them, told them, yeah, I just arrived and I took the plane and, and, and why is everyone laughing? And they said, well, you just said you just arrived by bicycle. And I was like, oh, you know, like, <laughs> whoops, you know, <laughs> but it was, it was really it was great, you know, because they, they were and and that was something, you know, for me, that was a real personal growth opportunity, because I found that I was more accepted by them and, and got access to things because I was very, very open to Japanese culture. And the funniest joke or one of the funny jokes was like, if they I forget who said it, but it was someone from SOJ said, you know, you know, Eric, if only you had been born in Japan, you'd be Japanese. You know, obviously, anyone born in Japan would have been Japanese, but it was more, you know, they meant that sort of my style of, you know, trying to listen and understand and all that was, it was, it was very much a compliment. I, you know, just like to kind of, you know, I, I really enjoyed everything about it, you know, culture or culture and the people. And, and, you know, I just dove into it. Do you have any funny or, or uh, interesting stories from down there? Like, for example, did you ever, you know, turn the corner and bump into you Suzuki and spill your coffee on him or anything crazy like that? Fortunately, no, uh, I never spilled coffee on him or anything like that. I remember, and this is, this isn't so much a funny story, but it's a very interesting one. I remember, and I guess this is more, this is more a Dreamcast story than, than a, than a Saturn story, but I'll share it anyway. 
I remember going, we had been working on a, on a, a new version of true motion. It's true motion two and a different team, a different, some different folks at, at, uh, duck or onto, I forget if we were already onto at the time had been working on it. It was definitely more CPU intensive and it was more optimized for running on a PC and the folks at, at Sega, you know, we're going to, cause we're going to show it on the dreamcast and, and we wanted to make it work there. And, you know, I had to go and, and show it and was showing it on the PC and the performance on there. And they're like, well, we've looked at the performance on here. We know it's not going to work. It's just not going to perform adequately or on, on the dreamcast just, we're, we're not going to have the horsepower that that you're demonstrating on right now how do how do you how do we, how can we know that that this is going to work and i just said well i'm promising you it will and we will do whatever it takes to make it work and from that tm2x was born um you know again was floored at, thankfully you know at the, at the trust they put in me at that point to just say, no, no, I'm going to make, you have my personal assurance that this is going to happen. And then I came back to New York after saying, listen, guys, this is, you know, there was my prediction. I told you this is going to happen. And so went back to the drawing board and a lot of stuff or, you know, dusted off a lot of things that were like, no, 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 we could do it. You know? So that's in retrospect, it's a lot funnier. It's, it's a funnier story than it was at the time of standing in front of a whole bunch of people who were saying like, you know, we know this isn't going to work. How are you going to make it work? And, and I was like, oh boy. Of course, like, you know, then there's the pressure to make it work. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, wait, I have a great funny story. If you want just a straight up funny story. One of the first times I was visiting in Japan, we they they took us out to dinner, uh, the DTS folks, and um, they took us to this German restaurant. So, because they wanted us, you know, they were worried about uh, uh, us uh, eating too much weird stuff or something like that. And... At one point, you know, they said we're having like steak or something at this German restaurant for sausages. I forget what it was. And I just start, you know, typical American. I'm just, you know, cutting up sausage or whatever, you know, kind of like. And, and, and everyone just like this hush falls over the, the crowd. And I'm like, what, what, what happened? And they're like, are you a chef? And I'm like, no. It's like, well, how do you use the knife so well? And I just said, wow. I just, you know, like it was just really because, because if, I mean, and maybe, you know, things have, you know, things do change culturally and so on, you know, the typical, especially in more, uh, in a, in a more, you know, dinner scenario where you're, you know, you don't use knives that much at the table, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's much more, you know, you're, you're more familiar with things being prepared in such a way that they're, they're not designed, you know, you're, you're used to using, um, the chopsticks and, and, and utensils and things. And, and it's not, so just going to town with a, with a sharp knife on your, on your meal is kind of unusual. And, and I said, Oh no, no, I'm just, you know, I just, I'm good. And uh, the, the, the funny part of the funniest part of the story was they then said, well, could you cut our food for us? So, <laughs> so I went and I said, sure. <laughs> and I helped people cut their, cut up their That's food. That's fantastic. So it was great. I think, I think kind of, kind of sealed the, the friendship at that point. Cause we were just, we were just really open about things. You know, it's kind of like, you know, yeah, this is, um, I remember, you know, all sorts of fun stories about, you know, like, oh, we like the crispy parts of the shrimp, you know, they like the shells, if you're familiar, you know, again, uh, this large, you know, super giant shrimp being served in restaurants. And, and of course us Americans, uh, would want the nice soft belly of the shrimp sort of thing. And, and, uh, the more Eastern palate is to, to have, you know, the nice crispy, crunchy, you know, head of the shrimp and we were like okay you can have all the heads and i'll have all the tails and you know it's very it all worked out 
So wow. I'm all about those shrimp heads. Yeah, no, no. I eventually <laughs> learned to be like, you know, it's 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 different. You know, they uh, for quite a while, I, I had this reputation. They would just like say, okay, what are we? Where are we going to take Eric to like try to to stress him out over, over the food? And so I, I had everything. I literally, we would just do everything. I mean, obviously the Saturn wasn't doing super well in the market here. Um, was there a sense of that in the American office? Like, you know, were, were the folks there super passionate about gaming or were the, was it more just, you know, uh, focused on the business? Well, there was the launch. There's no, you have to, every Saturn conversation, you got to at some point acknowledge the U.S. launch. And I think that... I mean, I remember being, I forget what conference, I think it was a developer's conference I was at where, where um, they announced it. I was, I was at that conference and just jaws dropped when it was like, okay, it's going to be, you know, everyone was excited to try to beat Sony to the punch, but, you know, as developers and we were like, oh my God, you know, how, what, how could you not have warned us? You know, are we ready? Or what's, what's going to be out there? And, and the launch stung for quite a while um i think you know sony's launch in the u.s just went a lot better <laughs> and and that that was tough and i think there were you know there were some fantastic games and games that were you know th that came from soj that did tremendously well and you know beautiful gorgeous one of my favorite games you didn't use true emotion but uh i'm a huge panzer dragoon fan so the 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 games were there the technology were there it it was excuse me um you know, it was a challenge to program on the Saturn. Certainly, um, yeah, it's 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 tough to say why didn't it do as well in the states. It was a, a, little, a little more cutthroat, and I think you know Sony kind of focused on things here, and the developers I think found the the PlayStation a little bit easier to to develop for. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's tough. Going to be getting the uh, remake of Panzer Dragoon. I am waiting with bated breath. I am so, when I heard about that, I was just like, okay, thank, you know, if, if there was ever a reason to be thankful of that, my, my family got me a, a switch for Christmas. That was it. Um, I'm, I'm super, I, I just, you know, in, even in, after one of the times uh, dusting off my Saturn after a long time, the first thing I did was like, okay, I'm going to play Panzer Dragoon and, and just work through it again. Huge fan, huge fan of that. Yeah, definitely. We'll have to get you on here when we do a stream of that and play through a little bit. Do you have any odd, neat, or unusual Sega hardware or software from back in the day? I do, as a matter of fact. I haven't seen this show up much. I, I'm sure they're probably still out there. I have the IR remote wireless controllers. Um, and so there's an adapter you plug in the front. I don't know how many people, maybe everybody has them. I don't know. But I, I, I haven't seen them too often. And I was a big fan of these, uh, you know, so you could, you know, do these, have the wireless controllers. Uh, I don't know. Are they, are they, are they odd or rare? I don't know. You guys tell me you'd know better nowadays, I guess. Yeah, they, they are getting pretty obscure. Those, I, I have um, a receiver and a single controller uh, from Japan. And then I've got the dual controller and uh, receiver from Europe. So I've got like one of each of the setups. And I'll tell you, man, the, the European ones, the, black casing versions those are pretty pricey these days 
So yeah, that's uh, let's see what other obscure things I have a whole I don't know not a not a stack I'll say but when VF when Virtual Fighter Two came out there was a comic that was done and I have a bunch of those so I've I've got bunches of of memorabilia I used to get Christmas cards from from uh, folks both in SOA and SOJ that I've held on to and stuff like that I've a, a you know some some conference some fans and things and uh, you know all sorts of memorabilia hardware wise you know I still have my developer kits and stuff. I'm sure that's fairly rare at this point. I'd have a hard time parting with that. But consumer-wise, I think that, you know, the light gun, it's uh, that and the wireless controllers. Some Dreamcast stuff I have, like, I had one of the, it's a, a Godzilla um, with VMU, visual memory unit. So I got some things for that, which are unusual. So lots of little, you know, little fun things. That's re- that's really cool though. You've been playing a lot of uh, you play a lot of light gun games. Um, I can't say a lot. Um, House of the Dead was just one of my favorite. You know, I just I I love House of the Dead. I don't, know, just, I don't know, I'm big. You know, the classic sort of thing. Um, I started working through. Um, oh, you know, Kay, you you got me back hooked into it, and I haven't I haven't looked at it in a while. Um, one of my uh. Another light gun game. We'd have to come back to that one. <laughs> but yeah, one of my one of my favorites was. We, I know we we played way too much House of the Dead when we got the light gun uh, at the time. So it was just both a nostalgia because we had that had been the game that we we played it a lot. No, that's that's the game I played when I was a kid as well. House of the Dead too when I came to Dreamcast. Yeah, played a ton yep. of that. That was like that was the party game. Have friends come over and switch out every time someone died. Can you just tell us real quick, uh, what was Kenji Ino like? I mean, I know he's no longer with us, and we sort of have this uh, idea that he was uh, super passionate, you know, and really just kind of did things his own way. What was what was the guy like? What was it like working with Warp? I met with him in person, uh, I want to say maybe just two times, but he was everything you'd expect him to be. You know, it was definitely passionate about things, a presence in a room, you know, like, He's another one of these people who like, okay, no compromise. How do we make this fantastic? And, you know, you're just thrilled to be part of the project, you know, sort of thing. Um, you know, he's one of those kind of larger than life kind of folks. So yeah, sort of like exactly like you'd picture it. Um, really, really nice guy. Don't think he spoke much English, to tell you the truth. To score Enemy Zero, he wanted, he really wanted to get Michael Nyman on board to do the... Um to do a piano piece for it. And there's an interesting story about how he essentially took Michael Nyman into a hotel room and just wouldn't let him go. And he just kept asking him over and over to got to score this game. We really want you to do it. And eventually Michael Nyman just said, yes, okay, fine. I'll, I'll do it because he just wanted to get out of there. And so that's, you know, that's just the intensity of uh, Kenji. I know that, uh, you know, we're aware of. So it's neat to hear it from somebody who's met with him that, yeah, that's, you know, every bit of that is probably true and, you know, that he was sort of a larger-than-life character. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even I remember before meeting him, it was just like, you know, the the moment that we knew he wanted true motion for the game was like, you know, everyone's like, oh, you're, you know, this is fantastic, you know, you're going to get to work with it. You know, it's like, because, of course, I hadn't met him yet or, you know, didn't really know him. It, it wasn't, you know, the, the lore out there about the thing. But the, certainly swirling around was like, oh, you know, just wait. It's going to be fantastic. And, it, you know, certainly lived up to it. It's really great. 
How did you feel that True Motion did uh, on the Saturn compared to uh, uh, other consoles or even like the Dreamcast, for example? As far as consoles, the Saturn was really, I think we, we sort of peaked. And I guess we peaked early on. I mean, we did, we never quite got the usage, the Dreamcast as much. Uh, the number of games we were involved in there wasn't nearly as much. At that point, I think, you know, say there's the, the M-Deck the codec that had been developed by CRI, which was, you know, had an even closer relationship with Sega than, than we did. They were part of the same, you know, holding companies. And I, I knew that, you know, it's funny. They were our, our main competition, but I, I, you know, literally exchanged uh, greeting cards with them. And so I, I no ill will whatsoever. Um, but they did a really phenomenal job in, in creating this sort of hybrid MPEG for the Dreamcast that got got more use. And it was really, you know, they, they just had the, the, that much more of a, a closer relationship with the hardware and, and, and folks over there that, that, that was harder for for true motion to to kind of crack at that point i think you know if if uh, the time scales had been different and we had been like further along with our vp3 development when the dreamcast happened i think we you know we were pivoting at that point between different technologies and and uh better at you know more mpeg like bit rates and and the timing just wasn't quite right there and we had you know really started focusing on the the internet as Dreamcast came out, which which to me was sort of a you know it was a kick in the gut a little bit, but it was it was tough making that transition and and there was a lot going on you know there's the the katana there's you know the 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 Dreamcast in the U S and I'm sure you've heard all the stories about the the SOA version versus the SOJ version and and so on trying to you know figure out what version you know what what where we were running our code and so on and so forth which which uh, was was challenging but the 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 Saturn was really for me, the platform with the most adoption outside of you know, eventually the PC and, and kind of where things went after that. I had done, I actually had done a, uh, a PlayStation, an original PlayStation version of True Motion. And there it was kind of even harder because the M-Deck that, uh, you know, Sony had that kind of built-in JPEG decoder block in the, in the PlayStation. That was uh, a tough nut to crack for a software-only codec. And I had done a version that I prototyped on uh, some silicon graphics hardware because it was similar to what Nintendo had in the, oh, was it the GameCube or? I think the reason that in the Nintendo 64 days for the SGI machines. Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, right. GameCube was after the 64, right? Or am I missing? Yeah, yeah. So that I had, I had done something that was close to because we were hoping to do a lot more with developers who were going to like you know work on one system and, and port across there's actually sega was working on a game uh called sacred pools i don't know have you ever any of you heard about sacred pools uh it made a big part of the pun big splash at e3 it was a kind of a pet project of of one of the higher ups at sega of america and it was going to be cross-platform it was to be uh let's see the guys at code monkeys were developing it it was going to be across at least on the Saturn and the PlayStation. And it, it just never, it sucked up lots of resources and, and there was lots of parties and promotion and things. And it just sort of never happened. But that was one of the big reasons that I had to positively get a PlayStation version of, of true motion going somewhere out there. There's a, there's a prototype of, of sacred pools running on a PlayStation playing true motion. Hopefully we'll be able to find that one of these days. I don't know. It might be in a, it might be in a, in a, a, a dump somewhere in England or something, but it's, uh, who knows? Who knows? We're hoping to find some of those things. I mean, we're still hoping, holding on hope for that uh, Virtual Fighter RPG. Yeah, I got to drop back into, you know, what happened with all the Shenmue stuff and uh, Virtual Fighter RPG and fell behind on all that stuff. 
Yeah, no, I was going to ask if you if you knew if that if they for that uh, the because they made a version on Saturn if they used any of the True Motion for that because I know they Sega was using a lot of that the True Motion codex for their uh, for a lot of their games. So I'm not sure if maybe he approached you for that. They really, really. I mean, this is, this is definitely you know a passion project, you know, sort of thing. I mean, you know, the the history of it, and certainly as much of it as possible was going to be in game engine. You know, the idea was to 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 avoid FMV as much as possible. They wanted to make it you know super super seamless and and just you know, if I recall correctly, I think we had done some tests. I seem to recall some segments that I don't know where they are these days. I don't think I have them, but I think they, they might have been on a, a hard drive somewhere down in Manhattan, and they're gone by now. That's kind of one of the uh, the holy grails of the Saturn preservation and you know fan groups uh, is to find anybody who has any knowledge of uh, an actual... Uh, compiled program for you know, Virtua Fighter RPG slash Shenmue running on the Saturn. Just recently, like two days ago, I found out about the Sega Extreme Discord channel. Uh, and I dropped into the development place first and saw what they had been talking about in there was directly related to True Motion and trying to see if there was the possibility uh, of having a compiled Saturn executable where you could drop a bunch of uh, AVIs you know, onto the disk and just have a, the true motion codec you know, playing them, decoding them. What's your thought process on that since you're now in that Discord? I know that exists. The binary for that exists because I wrote it. Um, <laughs> uh, basically, I, 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 for, for our development purposes, I, I made an a executable that would just look at you know, whatever, whatever files you put on the disc and it would play them. Um, and so I know those exist so that, that, that I might be able to, to unearth in a relatively painless fashion. Nothing's going to happen by tomorrow or next week or things. I'm, I've got a, I've got a, I'm, I'm transitioning from one job to the next and, and preparing syllabi and, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff for the fall. So you have to you bear with me and I'm, I'm, million projects uh, deep in, in lots of things. My eyes are always bigger than my stomach, uh, so to speak. Yeah, well, the community in, in general, I, I saw the reaction you know, to your appearance, and they're pretty happy to, to see your input. Have you programmed any other code for the Saturn that no one knows about? Code that no one knows about? Certainly that, let's see, there was one particular demo that at the time people saw, but I, I, the, the general community, you probably haven't seen. Um, and we demoed it as a thing called Ted the Head, which was uh, what we called the demo. And we had done this later on in development there. Uh, Sega of Japan created this, the SGL, the Sega Graphics Language or Sega Graphics Library. I don't know how, I'm sure the community, hopefully people are, are on that one. It's basically... They wanted to, to create, you know, make it easier to do 3D on the on the Saturn. And, you know, so they they created these, you know, wonderful libraries that were optimizing for, you know, VP1 and so on. And there was a version that was the, who, which character was it? Just walking through a base, you know, kind of just uh, animated wonderfully at, you know, 60 frames per second, you know, sort of thing. And we created a texture map of an actor talking about true motion 
And we compressed that and did it in such a way that we also we were able to texture map that to the head of the character and stream from the CD while the other stuff was all going on. So it was really kind of tightly integrated with the, the engine and the update and, and everything happened seamlessly. So outside of developers conferences, you, you would have never really seen that. And that was kind of one cool demo that I wish uh, some of that showed up more, you know, that sort of thing where people were, were using FMV in, in unusual ways, that ways that kind of more complemented the 3D part as, as opposed to being a substitute for it and vice versa. I was curious what your sort of opinion on the, I see extended effort on game preservation is nowadays. Well, like I said, in my current job, I'm, I'm worrying about that exact same thing in, in other ways. Uh, what we're doing over there is we're actually using a special disc that was created called the M-Disc, which is a DVD format. They actually have a Blu-ray version of it now as well. That's supposed to, they're called the M-Disc, Millennium Disc. They're supposed to last a thousand years and, and be no bit rot and no, you know, no oxygen can get in and so on. It's a non-organic dye and you know, all this kind of great stuff. Thankfully on the Sega Saturn and, and so on, a lot of these other platforms, you know, emulation is is more of a viable thing for a lot of people. And in a way it, it encourages people to also to for the for the hardware because there is you know you can kind of concentrate on one and they complement each other well but it is it is challenging and i'm i'm certainly encouraged to see that happen you know it's it's nice that uh you know people are playing games i'm i'm even you know playing some games that i i never played at the time thanks to the you know efforts of folks like you and who are who are able to kind of pass the torch from generation to generation so my hat is very much off to the the community i'm very happy it's out there doing that sort of thing um i i actually even there's there's a bunch of atari st it was uh, through atari st emulation preserved some of the music software i wrote back in the 80s and and that's also just in there i have you know my still my original st as well and it still works but uh preservation is is a is a tough thing you know hardware hardware doesn't live forever you know capacitors do leak and uh cds do rot and it's unfortunate it is very, very unfortunate. Yeah, I think one of the big things is just the legal aspect as well. I mean, you see all the thing in the news for Nintendo suing these guys for uh, distributing these games and all that. And I know that's that's really a tough, a tough topic bouncing those. I know me and Kay talked a lot about it. I was curious what your opinions on bouncing that legal aspect with the, you know, the preservation aspect. It's tricky. <laughs> it's definitely tricky. I, I the challenge, you know, as as the Folks like Nintendo and, and the, 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 the IP holders, you know, they're always concerned. It was the Disney effect of like, you know, yeah, you have to be really, really careful about your IP because if any of it gets out in the public domain and suddenly it, it, it opens the doors to suddenly you don't own the rights to Mickey Mouse anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, I can respect that, but it is a shame to potentially lose stuff as well. We shifted, you know, we started off being very, very, very proprietary onto it or a duck, you know, we were all about the, you know, RIP and so on and, and, and went through a big shift. Obviously now with the Google version, it's all just open source and it's it's freely available, royalty free and so on. So thanks to, you know, a company that, that took the exact opposite, you know, they provide their software for free. That's a, a way to, to give things a life of their own. So it's it, that's really, you know, it, it is a balancing act to, to get stuff out there. I mean, MAME has been facing that problem for a long time and, and obviously it still exists. And I think they're, you know, it's one thing to preserve things. It's another one to distribute. And, you know, you need a certain amount of distribution to preserve beyond, you know, one person with the ultimate library of things. But you also don't want to see, you know, people exploiting it in ways that would anger the, the original authors and things like that. 
it's tricky. I don't have a I don't have a good answer for that one. Wish I did. It's just a shame, though. I mean, hopefully one day we'll be able to figure out some way to balance it. Well, thankfully, I think you do. You know, you have a leg to stand on, saying, "Well, you know, I bought this thing once upon a time. I don't want it to. You know, I bought a, a license that should last, so therefore, you know, I should be able to back it up and 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 so on." One of the big aspects of you know modern day retro gaming is that you know the cost of some of these games have skyrocketed over the last 10 or 20 years with no we see like you know some companies will go ahead and put like a a collection together um we see that a lot with activision and midway putting out you know collections of games from the past but it's not always possible to port games to new uh consoles uh, or other platforms simply because like the source code or assets have been lost so this is something that keeps coming up with you know guests that we speak with uh, at Shiro here is the feeling about emulating uh, a game that's not available in the first you know party market going in and just going to a retail shop because the system's been you know out of production for 20 years versus being forced to pay $500 for a copy of Panzer Dragoon Saga when we know that there's a limited number of them out there and its popularity has caused its you know, value to rise in the secondhand market. So do you have thoughts about that, you know, that juxtaposition of being able to experience a game regardless, or does a, an end user have to go out and purchase it on the secondhand market? I have this, this, this lofty, weird position of my own where, where I don't know, um, especially, I mean, on the Saturn, I was lucky enough to, to sort of be provided. And, and always the rule was I, could get any Saturn game, or I was entitled to play any Saturn game I wanted to. It, it sounds weird, but it, it was kind of the case. So today, if I, I I would have no problem playing a backup because that was my arrangement with directly with Sort of Sega, and that that that's a weird instant, a weird position to be in. Certainly, any True Motion game, I, I would have no qualms about playing a backup of it because that was my deal. However, however, you know, certainly it's tough with digital media in general. It's like, you know, should everyone be allowed to appreciate the Mona Lisa, even though you don't own a copy of it? I'm okay with people using software that I wrote years and years and years ago and not paying me for it. You know, there's there's, uh, other software out there that's been released and open sourced and and things like that. It's definitely tricky because I think everyone here and probably in the community, if they had an opportunity to buy these games on a uh, first-party market and give their money to Sega, they'd be more than gladly to give it to them. But it's like, you know, realistically, I don't think they're going to be printing, you know, Saturn games anymore, even if they wanted to at some point. Well, not with that attitude, Pat. <laughs> it's funny because you, you do see that same issue in a, in a lot of different things. You know, it's it's the collectible. It's a collectible thing in, in general. I mean, uh, side note, I, I, I'm also a, a very avid Lego collector. Uh, and Lego aficionado, I guess. And there are, you know, certain Lego sets that were made at, at, at one point. And, you know, if you buy the original version, new in box sealed versus, um, you know, something that's built with at least, you know, this varying degrees of, you know, yeah, well, I, I, I bought a version that, you know, someone else, you know, you can buy a $1,500 Lego train set that was originally sold for $150. So from the collector point of view, I think that's that's fantastic. You know, if, if 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 people want to pay those sorts of things for the original, you know, have in their hands something that came off of that assembly line or that that manufacturing line, and and it's it's you know its scarcity has has increased its value. That's that's fine. That's great. 
people hoarding stuff, I'd have a problem with, you know, if you're creating artificial scarcity in a market just because you want to exploit that, that's, mm, that's not too great. But digital is tough, you know, because, because you can make infinite, you know, you can make copies of things and you're not exploiting, you know, so I, I don't think you're necessarily devaluing the original because it's, it's not, you know, it is a copy. If I look at the Mona Lisa in a book, I know it's, you know, I can appreciate the Mona Lisa and still respect the fact that there's somebody owns control or whatever, you know, to an original artwork, that's, you know, that's fine as well. So, so deep down, I can respect both. You know, it's great for people to be able to experience those things, but I think there are ways that, that the collector community can still feel that, yeah, you've got something exclusive and, and you should feel good about that. And, you know, you have to balance that. It's, you know, there are ways for the both, both things to live side by side. Yeah. You can, you can get a Hyundai that looks a lot like an Aston Martin, or you can get a real Aston Martin. What are your favorite Saturn games as a gamer? Panzer Dragoon. You know, immediately I have to say Panzer Dragoon just because the gameplay, the environment, the music. I'm a big fan of, you know, audio in a game. I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons that I, I also like, you know, Kenji Eno's approach to things and, and sound was just such an important. I mean, if you look at the real sound games, you know, game without any images, you know, sort of thing. So games that really did that, like Panzer Dragoon just... Everything about that was was well done. I just created such an immersive experience. I love that game. The immediacy of you know all the uh, AM2 games. You know, just love the arcade kind of stuff as well. Those would be the ones. You know, and and House of the Dead. I'm also a huge survival horror kind of fan, so I, I'm love that sort of thing as well. So House of the Dead kind of scratches a lot of itches for me. Sending. Are you a big Resident Evil guy? I'm not current on it. I, I played through Resident Evil, certainly on the original PlayStation and then, you know, the master of unlocking things and, and all that sort of wonderful stuff. So yeah, I'm a big fan of Resident Evil. I, I, I have to catch up though. I haven't, I haven't seen all the latest and greatest versions. Yeah. P- Peter just played that for the, uh, the first time recently. Original. Yeah. Oh, it's classic. It's great. It is great. One of my favorite games going way back uh, and originally I played it through on the PlayStation. The original PlayStation was Warp's other game. It was, was it M? D. Yes, D. D was phenomenal. Love that as well. You know, the, the environment, the piano, the score, the everything about it was really, really great. I love those, you know, just those really, really immersive games. In newer games, like I really got into for a while, Amnesia. You know, I love, I love this, you know, the games that really draw you in like that and aren't necessarily all action and you know, jump scare kind of things, but but that's just like you're sitting there like, oh my God, you know, draws you into it. The final two questions we have. First off, are there any projects that you are working on that you'd like to talk about? Well, um, I, I'm just going to put a plug out there for, it's it's not so much a project, but the, the big transition that I'm that I'm going through right now in terms of, you know, switching from senior research engineer over to the, our, our uh, gaming simulation art and science program at RPI. So a big plug for Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. We are uh, one of the top programs for game design and critical game theory and so on. It's kind of consistently ranked high and I'm, I'm, I'm super, super excited to be part of that program now and, and be working with new students on different things. So yeah, it's not a particular game project, but I will mention, and my son and I, this, that's, that's how crazy this now is. I remember sitting on, on my desk with, you know, kind of babysitting my son as an infant, kind of keep him under control while I was, you know, one man show at, you know, my little satellite office that I was, I was still up here. And he and I are starting to actually 
collaborate on some games, uh, which is which is exciting. He is now, of course, he lives in Boston. Uh, he has a master's in data analytics and is doing quite well and so on. So, but uh, we're going to try to do uh, with some some friends. We're going to we're going to work our way up from some some different things and so you have to keep an eye out for that uh who knows if we start to, a little independent thing we'll see we kind of touched base on this with specifically true motion but i wanted to ask were there any beta versions tech demos or unreleased items or source code that you've been privy to that doesn't fall under an nda that you would be willing to share with the community in any fashion i'll have to dig through it I have, I'm sure I have stuff. <laughs> I'm sure I've, I've lots of discs that say confidential for your eyes only. On them. So I'll have to see what the status of all that kind of stuff is, but I'm personally amenable to, to things and I can, I can reach out. I, I keep in touch with some folks who might be able to make me feel better about one way or another, where that goes, or, or maybe you didn't get it from me. Maybe it just showed up somewhere. I don't know. You've got lots of friends out there. Today's uh, obscure game in the cast is going to be the Horde on the Saturn, originally released on the uh, 3DO and MS-DOS in 1994, and uh, Sega Saturn in Europe in 1995, and uh, North America in 97. The idea with the Horde is basically you, you play the Squire. This, this, it starts off with this, you know, lots of FMV in it, and, and it was you know, high production value at the time. Uh, Kirk Cameron, of, uh, which I forget which sitcom he was in, um, you know, he, he was the, the character, Leroy Chauncey, who is this kind of squire who saves the king from uh, choking on a piece of mutton or something like that. And, and in, in, uh, as, as a favor, he says, oh, OK, I'm going to grant you you're now Sir Chauncey and you're going to be granted this land in, uh, you know, in the, the kingdom. And so your role then is to develop this land. And, and uh, you know, so you have sort of a sieve civilization kind of thing going on and uh the 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 challenge of course is that you never get the most the prime spots yours like you know it's like some kind of swamp land or something like that and there's always the horde and the horde are sort of these kind of gremlinish characters that are going to do their best to eat all of your they particularly love cows um so you're gonna eat your cows and your villagers and just they can just come in and and uh do their best to to destroy everything and the better that you do, you know, you 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 eventually build castles and and uh, you create this wonderfully productive regions. And as you move along, you get granted more lands and and so on. And much to the chagrin of the king's right hand man. And I don't I don't want to get too spoiler uh, in in all this, but so you're all constantly rewarded with new FMVs and uh, you know little cut sequences and and come in and little animations of the horde hordlings as they were called doing different goofy things and newscasts and trying to trick you into doing stuff and so this is this, this you know top-down strategy planning so city building defend the castle sort of thing being attacked by this this horde all the time and it it's uh, you know it's it's a lot of fun it's definitely one that's out there it's you know like you said it's not it's pretty obscure and that's you wouldn't think of it immediately i wouldn't even you know I, when i usually when i think of it i think of the 3do version which is the first version that we did but uh yeah there was a the saturn version of it all right guys thank you for listening to the podcast and remember sega saturn zero shin hatsubai
I have uh, one last request. We normally close out each show that we do with at least one person, if not everybody, um, you know, one after the other saying, you must Sega. play Sega Saturn. Would you oh, be willing to do that for us? So, so what, so specifically say you, you must play Sega Saturn? Yeah. yeah. It, it's kind of like, because that's, you know, Sega Is Saturn your... Shiro means. Sega Saturn Shinwatsubai. It's always like, you know, available now. It's always the one we always heard. <laughs> and on Japanese TV, it was always Sega Saturn Shin Hatsubai. And we're like, what does that mean? What does that mean? It's like Saturn available now. Um, that's awesome. I love it. Or I could say Sega Saturn Shiro Shin Hatsubai. That's it. That's it right there. We got it. <laughs>